Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published, without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the Man-God, Book 2, Number 164, Towards the Retreat on the Mountain Before the Election of the Apostles. The boats of Peter and John are sailing on the placid lake, followed by, I think, all the boats that exist on the shores of Tiberias, because they are so numerous, large and small, coming and going, endeavoring to reach and overtake the boat in which Jesus is, and then forming a long line behind it. Prayers, entreaties, requests, and outcries can be heard over the blue waves. Jesus promises, replies, and blesses. In his boat there is also Mary, and the mother of James and Judas, whereas in the other boat there is Mary Chalamet with her son, John, and Susanna. Yes, I will come back, I promise you. Be good. Remember my words so that you may connect them with the ones I will tell you later. I will not be away long. Do not be selfish. I have come also for other people. Be good. You will hurt yourselves. Yes, I will pray for you. You will always have me with you. The Lord be with you. Of course, I will remember your tears and you will be comforted. You must have hope and faith. And thus blessing and promising, while the boat is moving, they reach the shore. It is not Tiberias, but a tiny little village, a handful of poor, almost forlorn houses. Jesus and the disciples disembark, and the boats, handled by the servants of Zebedee, go back. Also the other boats imitate them, but many of the people in them disembark and want to follow Jesus at all costs. Among them I can see Isaac with his two protégés, Joseph and Timonius. I do not recognize anybody else amongst the many people of all ages, from youngsters to old people. Jesus leaves the village, the few poorly dressed inhabitants of which remain quite indifferent. Jesus has given alms to them and then reaches the main road. He stops. And now let us part, he says. Mother, you with Mary and Salome will go to Nazareth. Susanna can go to Cana. I will soon come back. You know what is to be done. God be with you. But for his mother, he has a special greeting, a salutation, all smiles, and also when Mary kneels down, setting an example to the others in order to be blessed, Jesus smiles most kindly. The women, with Alphaeus of Sarah and Simon, Go towards their town. Jesus addresses those who have stayed. I leave you, but I am not sending you away. I leave you for a short time. 
as I am retiring with my disciples to those mountain gorges which you can see over there. Who wishes to wait for me should do so here on this plain. Those who do not wish to wait can go home. I am retiring to pray because I am on the eve of great events. Those who love the cause of the Father should pray, joining me in spirit. Peace be with you, my children. Isaac, you know what you have to do. I bless you, my little shepherd. Jesus smiles at emaciated Isaac, who is now the shepherd of men gathering round him. Jesus is now walking away from the lake, turning his steps decidedly towards a gorge between the hills, which stretch in parallel lines, I would say, from the lake westward. A little but very noisy foamy stream runs down between one rocky, rugged hill and the next one, which is so steep that it resembles a fjord. Above the stream there is the wild mountain with ugly-looking plants which have grown in all directions, wherever they could find, in the crevices between stones. A very narrow, steep path climbs up the more rugged hill, and Jesus takes it. The disciples follow him with difficulty, in single file, in dead silence. Only when Jesus stops to let them recover their breath, where the path, which looks like a scratch on the impervious mountainside, widens out, they look at one another without uttering a word. Their glances say, But where is he taking us? But they do not speak. They only look at one another more and more desolately as they see Jesus resume walking up the wild gorge with its many caves, crevices, and rocks, where it is very difficult to walk, also because of the bramble and thorny bushes, which catch their clothes on all sides and scratch them and cause them to stumble and hurt their faces. Also the younger ones, laden with heavy sacks, have lost their good humor. At last Jesus stops and says, We shall stop here for a week in prayer to prepare you for a great event. That is why I wanted to be isolated in the desert place, away from all roads and villages. The grottoes here have already been useful to men in the past. They will be useful also to you. The water here is cool and plentiful, whereas the earth is dry. We have enough bread and food for the time we shall be staying. Those who last year were with me in the desert know how I live there. This is a royal palace compared with that place, and the season, which is now mild, is not affected by the icy bitterness of frost or the burning heat of the sun. You may, therefore, stay here cheerfully. Perhaps we shall never again be all together like this and all alone. This retreat must unite you, making not twelve men of you, but one only institution. Are you not saying anything? Are you not asking any questions? Lay on that rock the loads that you are carrying and throw down the valley the other load that you have in your hearts, your humanity. I have brought you here to speak to your spirits, to nourish your spirits, to make you spiritual. I shall not speak many words. I have told you so many in approximately one year that I have been with you. Enough of that. If I should have to change you by means of words, I would have to keep you for ten years, one hundred years, and you would still be imperfect. It is now time that I make use of you, and to make use of you I must form you. I will have recourse to the great medicine, to the great weapon, to prayer. I have always prayed for you, but now I want you to pray by yourselves. I will not yet teach you my prayer, 
but I will tell you how to pray and what prayer is. It is the conversation of sons with the Father, of spirits with the Spirit, an open, warm, trustful, quiet, and frank conversation. Prayer is everything. It is confession, knowledge of ourselves, repentance, a promise to ourselves and to God, a request to God, all done at the feet of the Father, and it cannot be done in turmoil amongst distractions unless one is a giant in prayer, and even giants suffer from the clash with the noise of the world in their time of prayer. You are not giants, but pygmies. You are but infants in your spirits. You are deficient in your spirits. You will reach here the age of spiritual reason. The rest will come later. In the morning, at midday, and in the evening, we shall gather together to pray with the old words of Israel and to break our bread. Then each of you will go back to his grotto, in front of God and of his soul, in front of what I told you in regard to your mission and to your capabilities. Weigh yourselves. Listen to yourselves. Make up your minds. I am telling you for the last time, and after you will have to be perfect, as much as you can, without tiredness and without your humanity. When you will no longer be Simon of Jonah and Judas of Simon, no longer Andrew or John, Matthew or Thomas, but you will be my ministers. Go, each by himself. I shall be in that cave. I shall always be present. But do not come without a good reason. You must learn to do things by yourself and be all you by yourselves. Because I solemnly tell you that a year ago we were about to become acquainted with one another, and in two years' time we shall be parting. Woe betide you and me if you have not learned to act by yourselves. God be with you. Judas, John, take the foodstuffs into my cave, that one. They must last, and I will hand them out. They are not enough, someone objects. They are sufficient not to die. A too full stomach makes the spirit dull. I want to elevate you and not make you dead weights. And the vision ends. My Way of Life, Chapter 5, from the Confraternity of the Precious Blood. Uh, the Angels, Bodiless Spirits, Their Number and Variety, Angelic Knowledge and Love, Angelic Sanctity and Sin. The creatures most like God, the angels, show forth best the goodness, the majesty, the glory of God. These are his most perfect images, and so the ones to be multiplied with divine extravagance. Heaven and earth are indeed full of his glory. Because the angels are bodiless creatures, pure spirits, it is too often concluded that they are supernatural beings. They are not. God is the only supernatural being. The angels are natural beings. They belong in, and indeed, dominate our world. They are creatures as natural as oaks or sunsets or birds or men. To call them supernatural because they are not like ourselves is a part of that provincial pride by which a man puts human nature at the peak of the universe, primarily because he himself is a man. To pretend they do not exist because we do not see them is like pretending that we never sleep because we have never caught ourselves asleep. 
there would be much more sense in the angels exiling us from the world of nature on the basis of a majority vote. We have no monopoly on nature, not even on free will and intellectual knowledge in nature. We have big brothers far outstripping our puny powers, yet nonetheless brothers, a part and parcel of the created world that is so truly ours. Seeing ourselves from the plant or animal level, we can with reason marvel at the nobility of men. If the animals were capable of such things, they would see us as godlike creatures. Looking up at the angels from our level, we promptly shrink to our proper proportions. Of all the created world, we have the least, the most earthbound, the feeblest of all created intelligence and love. Lest that be too humiliating, we can reflect that somewhat the same is true of the angels. Seen from our level, they are creatures so wondrous as to make men doubt their very existence. But seen from the heights of God, they are so inadequate an image of his splendor as to be insignificant in comparison with the infinite. It was no trick to fill the heavens with a heavenly host on the first Christmas night. The stars that sparkle on the body of night are a mere handful of jewels compared to the numbers of the angels. The prophet Daniel gives only a hint of their number when he says, Thousands of thousands ministered to him, and ten thousand times a hundred thousand stood before him. Dionysus humbly confesses, There are many blessed armies of the heavenly intelligences, surpassing the weak in limited reckoning of our material numbers. All the men in the world, at any time, are a handful, a scattered gathering, easily lost sight of in the myriads of pure spirits who most perfectly image the creator of both men and angels. Variety is dear to us, as it should be for us, it is dear to God. We appreciate changing seasons, the differences of trees, flowers, animals, and we are particularly grateful that all men and women do not look exactly alike. We like change and differences, not because we are fickle or just for the sake of change, but because no one moment, no one climate, no one expression of beauty or goodness exhausts the possibilities of reflection of the divine perfection. There are so many pleasing combinations of human creatures, so many pleasing patterns of human virtue, so many pleasing colors, sights, sounds, such inexhaustible aspects of truth, so many alluring insights into goodness. The variety of the world is at one and the same time a declaration of the imperfection of created things, each one giving us only so much and of the extravagant generosity of God. As in numbers, so in variety, the angelic world is a splendor that dims the variety of the physical world into a plainness approaching homely monotony. There are no angelic families or races. Each individual angel stands apart from all others more distinctly different than an elephant from a fly. The pleasant individual differences we notice from man to man and woman to woman are as far from the differences between the angels as a ripple on a pond is from the towering power and smashing violence of a stormy sea. At each encounter in the heavenly courts, the angels see differences greater than those which distinguish a rose from a woman. Multiply this by the countless numbers of the angels. 
The heavenly choirs are a luminous image of divinity's perfections, stupendous in its beauty, staggering in its wide variety. Yet all this is no more than a foggy outline of the beauty of God. Once created, the angels live forever, depending, as we do, on the steady support of the hand of God, but on nothing else. All the things that pertain to us, because we have bodies, have no place in the angelic world. Growth, nourishment, sickness, pain, the decline of old age, and ultimately death. They are so much more like God than we are that their whole being reflects something of the divine eternity, immortality, independence. Angels are neither old nor young, sick nor healthy, men nor women, infants nor ancients, tall or short, fat or thin. They are the bright flames of life, unflickering, unfading, indestructible flames that are fed by nothing but God. The princely dignity of Gabriel standing before Our Lady, the easy competence of Raphael protecting the young Tobias, the majesty, majesty of Michael with its flaming sword guarding the gates of a lost paradise, gives us some little vision of the nobility of the angels. We are in danger of blinding ourselves to that vision if we forget that these were angels stooping to our limitations, bowing to our penchant for thinking in pictures, thoughtful angels who delight us as a mother delights her infant by imitating its gurgling and chuckling. This is not a mother's normal speech, nor is this the angel's normal appearance. Angels were not made to give life to bodies as were human souls. The bodies in which they have appeared from time to time among us were the appearances of bodies taken on for our comfort, not real, but apparent that we might the more easily accept the angel, his message, his companionship. None of the things that are proper to living bodies could be accomplished by these apparent bodies of the angels. They could not digest a meal, beget children, become tired, or wake refreshed from sleep. For us to lose our body is the tragic thing called death. The body belongs to our integrity. Without it we are not men and women, but disembodied souls. We are only half ourselves. It is hard for us not to feel a little sorry for the angel's lack of bodies, forgetting that if the impossible thing happened and an angel had a real body, it would not be benefited but debased by that fact. Its completely spiritual nature in its independence and power has no need of a body. It can get far more done than any strong man, indeed, than any material force. It is free from the barriers that the physical inevitably imposes on our knowledge and our love, free from the sluggishness, fatigue, and distraction that makes our lifetime harvest of truth so skimpy, free from the frustration inherent in all our loving gestures of union, of all the feeble faith that supports our love, of all the helplessness that is love, our love's bitterest fruit. Not even a child is puzzled about how an angel gets its clothes on over such huge wings, for it is clear to everyone that the wings we give to angels are a symbol and nothing more. The swift flight of a bird contrasted with the trudging step of a man is a fitting symbol of smooth, untrammeled, rapid movement, and so a centuries-old expression of the celerity of an angelic passage. 
In our own times, we might appeal to the soundless swoop of a diving jet plane to help our stumbling minds to follow the flight of an angel. We would come closer to reality by following with a flick of the eye the almost instantaneous thrust of lightning. We have the most accurate measurement of that angelic progress in the time it takes our own minds to jump from city to city, across oceans, over five, ten, or fifteen years, for it is thus that an angel moves. In our thinking about the angels, we must draw much more on our knowledge of God than on our knowledge of man, for the angels are finite, pure spirits modeled on the infinite, pure spirit. We do not locate God by surrounding him. He is not contained within the easily discerned outlines of a body, a town, a country. He is where he works, and so is everywhere, for nothing can continue to be unless it is supported by his omnipotence. Nor can we locate an angel by surrounding it. It, too, is a pure spirit. To ask where an angel is means to ask where it is working. Only thus is an angel in place. Obviously, no place can be too small for an angel, no place too big, no place too distant. For with the angels, it is not a question of squeezing a body into uncomfortable quarters, of spreading its arms wide to cover more territory, or of easing it out of a town quietly. No angel is everywhere, for no angel is God. No angel is omnipotent. But neither is an angel human, to be circumscribed by the length of its arms or the horizons of eyes. It is pure spirit, to be limited in place only by the degree of the power and perfection proper to the nature given it by God. There is a fascination for us in thinking of the angels, a fascination that springs from the fact that a healthy mind welcomes nourishing truth as enthusiastically as a healthy stomach welcomes a hearty meal, with the difference that there is no such thing as a stuffed mind. The more of truth we learn, the hungrier we get, though the happier and more satisfied we are. These angelic big brothers of ours have much for our learning, much of God, whose closest image they are, and much of ourselves, to deflate our pride and stimulate our humility as we learn from them how dim a light marks out our path and how wavering a heart supports our love. But to learn any of the lessons there to be learned, we must remember that angels are not God, neither are they men.